Well, if you would be turning your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. We're in verses 7 through 12 this morning. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Hear this as it really is to us, God's very own word. Paul says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth for these uh, verses, what I'm hoping that we walk away with having heard uh, this message this morning is this. God's law reveals that we must run to Christ alone to gain life and power over sin through the Holy Spirit. God's law reveals that we must run to Christ alone to gain life and power over sin through the Holy Spirit. As Cameron showed us from verses one through six last week, our justification, it sets us free for something. We're set free from the requirements of the law so that we get to serve God for his glory and our joy and the life in the joy of the, the life of the world and the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's picking up on our theme that I'm sure you've heard often at CCC. We're not saved from God, but to God. The gospel, you see, doesn't merely just, oftentimes we can struggle with this. The gospel doesn't merely just negate things in our lives. It does do that for sure, but it doesn't just negate things in our lives. Our, our sin, our sinful habits, the law or the condemnation that our consciences feel when we break the law, or even worldliness or the devil, it doesn't just negate things, it transforms our lives. So, so it adds richness and complexity as we flourish in Christ for God's glory and the life of the world. So you remember how Paul brought out this truth in verses one through six. He used the analogy of a marriage. Our old spouse, the law, is dead, and that sets us free so that we can be married to another, namely to Jesus. So now in these verses, Paul is dealing with the question that inevitably raises, which is, all right, so is the law bad? Is that what's going on here? And his confident declaration is, by no means, the law is not bad. And yet, and yet, it's very interesting that he doesn't just immediately dive into an immediate, what we would consider an immediate vindication of the law. So the question is, all right, Mr. Paul, given all of this, we're, we're, we've been died to the law in some way, we're, we're now married to Jesus Christ, so that sets the horizon of our new experience, so the law must be bad, right? And he's, no, by no means, and yet, so he doesn't just dive into immediate vindication as to say, here's why all the law is good. He says, and yet... That, that's interesting. Paul wants to see, us to see there's a deeper issue here. And so I think that raises a pair of questions for us straight away. And the first is, how would you assess your view of God's law? In a way, I'm kind of just riffing off of Cameron's question to us last week. Do, do you, are you more just naturally prone towards legalism or licentiousness? 
This is a question more or less in the same spirit. Do you naturally think of the law as good or bad? Are you one of those people who, kind of like me at times, it kind of depends, I've noticed, but at times just really enjoy structure? So you, you kind of think of the law as providing the structure that you need. All right, here's the steps I need to live the good life, A, B, and C, so I just got to do it. Or do you kind of feel that the law is in some sense an inhibitor of true joy, the things you want to do? We all land at various points along that spectrum. So where do you just naturally uh, fall along that line? Is the law is good or is the law bad? Now, Paul is prodding us to that kind of self-examination in order to show us something really important. In fact, I would argue to help us to see the heart of the gospel. You see, to the legalists among us who judge the law good, we enjoy that kind of structure, he's going to say, we've been released from that yoke to be married to another. And to the licentious among us, he's going to say, no, actually the law is holy and you need it because it's good. So don't you see, I mean, that can kind of confuse us, but I hope what you're beginning to see is that the issue for Paul is deeper than what the law can do for you or what the law is prohibiting you from doing or your true self or even where you stand positionally in relation to it or about your attitude about it. The the issue here is much deeper. Now, you may say, well, wait just a second here. I mean, there are lots of Bible verses about the goodness of God's law, especially in the Psalms, right? I mean, we can think of Psalm 119. That's easy. Oh, how I love your law. Or even Psalm 1, blessed is that man, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in God's law. And, and by the way, he's meditating on it day and night. So what are, we, what, are you, what are we to do with that? Is the law good? Yes, but here's the thing. Do you love it? Do you meditate on it day and night? Here's where that second part of the first question comes in for us. How would you assess your obedience to God's law? Here's ultimately what Paul is telling us. You can't actually love God's law like you're meant to love it. You can't actually meditate on it day and night if you're married to it. There are sort of two, outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, two natural and and dominant ways of kind of thinking about marriage in our culture at least. And the first is you're either expecting your spouse to fulfill all of your deepest needs and desires, so you pour all of your hopes and dreams into that relationship in the expectation that it really will fulfill you, or you discover that actually your spouse can't do that for you, you're made for another, you can't put that weight upon them, so they don't fulfill you like you think you need to be fulfilled, and so you become resentful of that relationship and seeking often ways to escape and have a little slice of life all to yourself. And when you're married to the law, it's like that. You're either trying to live up to it and failing because you think it's the key to the good life, or you're resentful that you're stuck with it and you're always trying to get away and failing because your conscience won't let you. But love it or hate it, if the law is your spouse, Jesus isn't. If, and if Jesus or God isn't your spouse, you can't actually love the law that reveals his character or meditate on it as the revelation of his goodness and his righteousness and his justice and his equity and yes, even, yes, his mercy. And, and you can never live up to it. You have to be free from the law and married to its author. Well, all right, you say, what does that actually mean? I mean, is the law after, at the end of the day, I mean, that's the question here before us, right? Is the law good or bad after all? I'm confused. To which I think Paul would say, okay, good, let's go deeper. That's what these verses are about. So let's see it more particularly. In verse seven, we can sort of pose to ourselves the question, is the law bad? And we hear Paul saying, no. And yet, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. 
Now, some people stumble over this because they think that Paul must be talking about some time in his life before he knew the law. That, that, you know, and, and once he'd heard it, uh, sin came along, or it revealed his natural sinfulness, it convicted him of his sin, and so that's what he's saying. And, and we often get confused because it's like, well, all right, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. There never was a point in his life, more than likely, in which he didn't know the law. He grew up with the Ten Commandments from birth. So, so that doesn't really make sense. But I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. What he's actually referring to is when the law really landed for him. It hit him in his heart in a fresh way. And it's why he refers to this commandment against coveting. You remember from our series in Micah, our, our sort of working definition of what it meant to covet. Covet wasn't just desiring things considered in isolation, but desiring things without any reference to God or to each other. It's preferring anything to God. And that's often why for many of the Old Testament saints, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, stood in a certain sense to represent all of the commandments. Because in order to covet, you, have, you essentially have to break the most fundamental commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and might. So, so to, to fill the, the desires of our heart with something other than God is to covet. And that's why Paul refers to it here. And by the way, it's relatively easy to seem outwardly moral and, and never get here to this commandment against coveting. You'll never see the evil in coveting by your own reason. The Holy Spirit has to convict you of it. And, and by the way, also, it's impossible for us ultimately to be without the law. Paul isn't saying here, all right, you know, I was doing just fine until God lobbed the law on me. So that's kind of a bummer. No, 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 he's saying the, 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 the way in which you and I are constituated, the, the way in which you are, are built is that we can't live without the law. The moment we try to be human, we come against God's law. And the moment we find that, we find that we fall short of it. All right, so we say, all right, Mr. Paul, is the law good? Yes, and yet, in verse eight, sin seized the commandment and produced more sin. In fact, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, this is not a new illustration with me. Lots of people have noted this, uh, but St. Augustine provided probably the most helpful illustration of what this looks like in our day-to-day -day lives, one we can readily grasp in his own experience. He said before he'd become a Christian, before the Holy Spirit began to work that transformation in his heart, he was a young man, and with his friends, he was passing by an apple orchard, and they saw some apples in the orchard, and they decided they were just gonna skip the fence over, grab some of the apples, and then toss them aside. And, and later when he became a Christian, he was wrestling with that, like, why, why did I do that? Because it wasn't that I wanted to eat the apples. They weren't even actually especially good-looking apples. The moment we took them, we took them away, and we just threw them to the hogs so they could eat them on the side of the road. Like, why, why did we do that? And he recognized it's because God's commandment told me, don't steal. And that aroused in me something that said, I'm going to steal. That the, the good life for me, in some sense, consisted of breaking God's commandment just for its own sake. And we can all, you know, it's not just kids that struggle with this. All of us struggle with that. That, that, that God's commandments come to us and there's a certain part of our sinful, self-centered heart that says, I'm gonna do it anyway. Because God can't be right. He can't be true. He can't be trusted. There's, there's gotta be life in the breaking of these commandments. But it doesn't just cover the negative things that we do. It also covers sometimes the ways in which we positively try to use God's law in a way that it's not meant to be used to get our own. I, I was thinking, I, as I was thinking about this, I saw a, a humorous illustration of what this might look like in a day-to-day -day life. There was a mom on Facebook, and she noted that there is nobody more insistent about proper hydration than the kid you've just put to bed. <laughs> you know, you go to bed now, whoa, 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 I got to drink some water here. <laughs> 
So it's, but, but, and that's not just little kids, that's all of us in some respects, you know? We, we take what, what is good, what God has required for us, and we try to use it to get our own, to avoid other responsibilities, to, to, to set up our own slice of life. So that's what the law often does to us. We find it, it comes to our hearts, and yet it seizes our hearts and produces even more sin. All right, Mr. Paul, does that mean the law is bad? No, verse nine, and yet when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What Paul means here is I saw my true condition. I saw myself as I really was. Sin seized my inner corruption. It prompted disobedience. It was like it took the reins of my personality and moved me in directions that were opposite of God's good commandment, opposite of righteousness and life. The law became my spouse. And the moment that happened, I tried to achieve perfection and the good life by it, or I tried to run away from it. And the whole time I was throwing things, people, things, stuff, affirmation, anything other than God into the God-sized hole of longing in my own soul. And these things that I thought I had some control over ended up controlling me. I preferred anything to God himself. You know, Adam and Eve's determination in the Garden of Eden that they would be their own gods, that they would determine good and evil, was not simply that they would assess what is good and evil for themselves, but they would live in the good in and by themselves. That they could see what was good and take it for themselves, and they could walk in it by themselves. And so the law shows up to reveal how rebellious and deadly that project really is. All right, Mr. Paul, so is the law bad? No, it promised life. You know, as Paul will point out in, verse, uh, in Romans 10, Moses writes this about the righteousness that comes by the law. The person who does them will live by them. And that, that promise of life is genuine. It's not a false promise. Good things genuinely fro- flow from our obedience to God's commandments. So the law isn't bad. And yet, is the law good? Verse 10, yes. And yet it proved to be death to me. So the promise of life by obedience to God's commandments is genuine, it's good, and yet it comes to us and it proves to be death. We can't get it. We can't reach it. Why? Verse 11, because sin was in control of my life. Paul says this, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. When the law showed up, My sin married it and it deceived me. It said, this is the horizon of your life now. You either get what you want through it or you get what you want by running from it. But whichever way I went, I found only death. You know, for people whose horizon is the law, law keeping makes you just as miserable as law breaking. Haven't you noticed this? Maybe your, your personality is you, tend, you like structure, you like the rules, you like to know what's coming, and so you're very fastidious about the law, so you think, or just about the rules in general, maybe your own rules, and you find it actually never brings you life. There's always something else you need to be doing, always some way in which you failed. You can always draw the line from your present discontent or the things that are going wrong in your life to something you failed to do in the past, and it just never brings you peace. And, and the lawbreaker finds this the same as, as well. Oh, there's going to be life if I just ignore that commandment. Oh, this is going to be good if I just you know, had this burden off my back, and it never brings life. All the things we pour our heart and energy into, it just never brings life. But we're all in the same boat, no matter where we land on that, we never find that it actually fulfills us. So for people whose horizon is a law, if you're married to the law, law keeping makes you just as miserable as law breaking. So what's Paul's conclusion in verse 12? The law is good. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So if the law is good, 
Who's not, therefore? I mean, if me and the law are in a relationship and we're continually having problems and life is a mess and I'm not flourishing and I'm not satisfied, but the law, on the other hand, is vindicated from all blame, it's holy and it's righteous and it's good, then who's the problem in the relationship? The law? No, it's me. But if that's the state of our relationship between me and the law, does the law have the power to fix it? Again, no. So now we begin to see, I hope, where Paul is leading us. The problem is deeper than the law. It's deeper than how I feel about the law or my pretended obedience to the law or my disobedience to the law. Deeper than my position in reference to the law. The problem is that I can't actually love the law and obey it if I'm married to it. Obedience has to do with more than just my, 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 my reason. It also has to do with my affection. Not just the will, but also the entire personality. And for people who can only see the letter of the law, it is entirely inadequate to capture our entire personality. We need something else. We need something bigger. So what's the solution? Paul's already begun to unpack it in verses 1 through 6, as we saw last week. And he'll continue to unpack it in verses 13 through 25, as we'll see next week. But the sum of the biblical solution is this. Victory has to come from someone outside of myself, outside of my relationship to the law. And that's the heart of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, we sung a bit of it in that last song. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 through 57, is, you could think of it as Paul's own commentary on Romans 7, 7 through 12. And what does he say there? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that work? By our union with Christ. Our old relationship with the law is over because we've died with Christ. And we've died with Christ in such a way that what is true of him is now true of us. And now he gets to be our spouse in the place of the law. And our new spouse gives us victory over sin. That's the gospel. It's deeper than your position in relationship to the law. It's deeper than your, your feelings of inadequacy. It's deeper than your feelings of victory. It's deeper than your, your, your own just natural instincts, whether it's towards legalism or towards licentiousness. You have to be united with Jesus so that he becomes your spouse, that his life becomes your life, that his spirit invades your personality, that it captures your will and your affections, and your new spouse gives you victory over sin. Those of you who serve with us at Heritage will kind of uh, track with this because we were talking about it with the saints there at Heritage earlier this week. But, but 1 John 4, 1 through 6, gives us a, a bit of an indication of how this actually works out in our day-to-day -day lives. And I would encourage you, if you have time this week, go and look up those verses because it'll help to give some flesh and meat and bones to what can often seem a very abstract discussion. Well, what John says in 1 John 4, 1 through 6 is this. There's a difference between living in the world and following the false prophets of the world and the spirit of the Antichrist and you as believers, even if you can't presently see it. And the difference is the spirit of the world only lives in the world. He can't live inside of you. So that all he can ever do is shout loudly and lead you into false ways and paths and, and wrong ways of thinking. And he can shape a whole culture, sure. And he can make you think that that's the good way to go, but he can't live inside you. He can't give you power. This is the difference for you though. If you belong to Christ, Christ's spirit lives inside of you. Amen. 
And that means you have a victory that you couldn't have if you were still in the world. And it means that you certainly, no matter whether you feel it today or not, you certainly have that spirit alive and working in you so that you have already overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. And so the difference between us now as believers in Christ and us apart from Christ in the spirit of the law is that the law could only shout at us and make us feel bad and make us feel condemned. But now as believers in Christ, it's not that the law becomes something we ignore or that the law is something like that's for the old way of living, but it becomes not something that condemns us because we have Jesus Christ inside of us, giving us a new power to believe and to love and to obey. So you can't keep the law if you're married to it. But if you're married to Christ, his spirit lives inside of you giving you new power to love him with all of your heart and soul and strength and might. And so we remember what we talked about just a few moments ago in Psalm 119. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. And what does he say in verse 32? I will run the way of your commandments. What? When? When you shall enlarge my heart. This is true. Old Testament saints recognize this as well. Until the Holy Spirit invades us and enlarges our hearts, gives us a new capacity to love, we won't love God and we won't walk in his commandments the way we're supposed to. But when that happens, it will surely follow that we obey him in the way that we were meant to. And by the way, in the Bible, heart just isn't your affections. The biblical way of thinking about the body seems weird to us now, but it was just culturally different. The way about thinking about your body, we tend to think of, of the seat of our personalities in our mind. But for the Hebrews, it was in your heart. And so your affections were actually in your gut, your bowels. You think of bowels of compassion. That kind of, what does that mean? But for them, it was just sort of the way they thought about affection. It's in your bowels. All right. It's weird to us, but it made sense to them, I guess. But the, the, the seat of your personality, biblically speaking, is in your heart. Not just the way you reason, but also what, 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 is your, effect, what your affections are. What, what draws your heart out. Not just your, your will, but also your entire personality. And so when God enlarges our heart, we begin to see the true meaning of the law, that it points us to Jesus Christ, that we need a new power inside of us for renewed obedience. You can't get there if the law is your spouse. You just can't. Try as hard as you might. You'll end up trying to achieve something good by it or resenting it because it can't fulfill you. And this is why ultimately the law is righteous and good. It most fundamentally reveals that we must run to Christ alone to gain life and power over sin through the Holy Spirit. Gordon Fee puts it this way. I think this is very helpful. This is his commentary, by the way, on uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. The relationship of law to sin is that the former is what gives the latter its power. That is, the law not only makes sin observable as sin, but also, and more significantly, demonstrates that one's actions are finally over against God and thus leads to condemnation. The law, which is good, functions as the agent of sin because it either leads to pride of achievement on the one hand or reveals the depth of one's depravity and rebellion against God on the other. In either case, it becomes death-dealing instead of life-giving. And that's the heart of Romans 7, 7 through 12. So two questions of application for us as we close. How are we going to take this word and apply it to our lives? Well, the first question I have for us is, how are you currently seeking to deeper your understanding of what your union with Christ means for your sanctification? 
Because here's where we take this, what can often be an abstract truth, and begin to put it into place in our lives. How are we seeking to grow in our understanding of what union with Christ actually means? It's not just a doctrine that Presbyterians talk about. It's not just a doctrine that we you know, kind of hear on Sunday mornings and then just kind of flirts in our brains for a little bit and that's all there is to it. No, it means that we begin to think seriously about what discipleship to Jesus actually looks like in our day-to-day lives. If we're married to the law, and, and, and in a certain sense, the law is inescapable, and yet we can't keep it. That just means game over, no matter how hard we might try to be good disciples of Jesus. But if there's another power at work in me because I'm united to Jesus, because what is true of him is now true of me, and he gives me his spirit inside of me to captivate me with a new allegiance and, and a new understanding of who I am as his beloved son, then the possibilities for genuine obedience from the heart, slow though it may be, are actually certain and actually begin to open up new possibilities and horizons in my own life. And so how am I growing and understanding what union with Christ actually means so that it doesn't just become a bare word or a doctrine I hear on Sunday mornings, but actually begins to influence the way that I think about myself and then what I do and the affections that I start to have. And then secondly, as an encouragement to us as we begin to think about this more deeply, How has the Holy Spirit recently helped you to apply the truth of your union with Christ in obedience to God? Because if you belong to him, if the Spirit really is at work in your life, he's done this. And and I don't want this to be a a condemning word or a discouraging word, because oftentimes, and this is just the truth of life in a fallen world, and our struggles still as people who, though we have the Spirit, still struggle with the flesh, oftentimes it can be hard to see this. We may go through seasons where it is hard to see the Spirit at work in our lives, but I encourage you, I I think Paul encourages us in these verses, lean into it. Where has the Holy Spirit been been at work in your life? Where have you noticed new affections? Where have you noticed, even if it's slow, even if it's not perfect, where have you noticed new growth and obedience to Jesus that you couldn't have done before because the Spirit wasn't as obvious to you before? So lean into that. As you begin to think, all right, what does my union with Christ actually mean for my day-to-day Also couple that with how has the Holy Spirit been at work so that you begin to put into practice some of this encouragement that the Bible means to give us, that we don't do this in our own strength. The Holy Spirit is with us. So the question for us is, who are we? Do we belong to Jesus or not? And if we do belong to him, who are we married to? The law or to Christ? In a sense, you could say the theme of these chapters in Romans is remember who you are. But don't just remember who you are. Remember what that means for you. You're not married to the law anymore. You're married to Jesus. Is the law good or bad? It's not the question. Are you married to it? If you're married to Christ, you'll begin to find new power in your heart and soul, a new allegiance that will enable you to keep his law as truly the delight of your heart. You'll be able to say with the psalmist, and genuinely, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. So what does Romans 7, 7 through 12 teach us? Simply this, God's law reveals that we must run to Christ alone to gain life and power over sin through the Holy Spirit. May the Holy Spirit help us to apply this truth even this very week that we would grow in our knowledge of our union with Christ and live in the power of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, over and over and over again, we are overawed with the wonder of what it means to belong to you because of Jesus Christ. And though, Lord, we struggle day to day to remember this truth, we struggle to see how it really changes our identity. And more than that, how it changes the whole trajectory of our lives. And yet we ask, Lord, 
that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to begin to put this into practice more. That we would be on the lookout for the ways in which your Holy Spirit has helped us to overcome our sin, to overcome our natural self-centeredness, and to live to you. Lord, may we be people who are marked more and more by recognition. We're not married to the law. We're married to Jesus Christ. That that gives us a new ability to appreciate your law, to, to love it, to truly meditate on it, because we don't have to worry that it stands against us, condemning us. We don't have to worry that the key to the good life is in our performance, but that you have given us life and life to the full in Christ Jesus. Lord, if we were uh, left to try to figure this out in our own strength, we would be totally undone. And so we need your Holy Spirit at work in us to drive this truth into our hearts, to help it to stick to our ribs. And so we ask that you, by your mighty power, would do that for us as your beloved people and that you would get the glory in renewed lives of obedience to you and that many others, as we begin to sing more deeply from our hearts, oh, how I love your law, will be drawn to you. We ask this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.